Hi, welcome to Tube to Table, the podcast about helping tube-fed kids become happy and healthy eaters. Every week, we will dive into the basics of tube weaning to help unravel the conflicting information families get from doctors, therapists, friends, and family. I'm Jenny, a feeding therapist, mom, and food lover. And I'm Heidi. I'm also a feeding therapist, and I love sharing meals with friends and family and helping kids learn to eat. Come with us as we share practical tips and provide real-world expert advice so that parents can help their little ones start their journey from feeding tube to family table. Hello, and welcome to episode one of Tube to Table, What I Wish They Had Told Me, Parent Reflections on What They Wish They Had Been Told When Their Child Got a Feeding Tube. We talked to a bunch of parents of tube-fed kids, and all of them over the years have told us at one time or another that there were things that they wish they had been told. Why weren't we told that this was this or that were possible or true? Why weren't we given this information? So after hearing that for many years, we decided to kind of pull some families of tube-fed kids that we work with at Thrive by Spectrum Pediatrics. And we got some pretty consistent responses from the parents. Some of the responses were about how to like maintain the tube from either like a medical standpoint or a kind of technical standpoint or mechanical standpoint, how to actually do the tube feedings, how to adjust the schedule. Those types of things we're going to provide in the show notes some links to later because there's other experts and other great resources out there that can speak to some of those things. But in this episode, we're going to focus on kids that have the goal of transitioning to oral feeds and what parents wish they had known when the feeding tube got in that might have helped them with the forward kind of thinking goal of getting their kids to become eaters. So take a look at our show notes after the episode if you need some resources or helpful tips about what to do with the tube. And then let's get started and talk about how can we unravel some of that information and weed it out so that we can clear up some of the misinformation or lack of information out there. One of the most common pieces of feedback we got from families about what they wish they had known is that not all feeding therapies are created equal. So their child gets a feeding tube put in, their doctor recommends feeding therapy because their child isn't eating enough or anything by mouth. So they go to feeding therapy and they think feeding therapy is a thing, not realizing that there's actually several options. And what is actually true is that there are several different kind of methods or approaches that therapists use to address feeding, some more evidence-based than others. And Heidi, if you could just talk a little bit about what the most common options are that people find themselves exploring. Sure. I think that the most common ones are either behavioral or sensory or oral motor, whereas oral motor looks at the way they move their mouth. Sensory looks at how their touch or smell or taste, all your senses respond to food or behavior and how the kids behave around food. So there's problems with evidence for each one of them. There's very little to no evidence that sensory-based therapies can help kids progress unless they're exposed to some food in there. Oral motor strategies, actually, there's a, a lot of evidence that shows that it works with adults, but there's there's really not anything that shows that oral motor or mouth moving strategies that don't include food actually progresses their skills at all. It's more intended for adults who have lost skills because of an accident or injury and not for kids who are developing skills. And then we also know from behavior therapy that there's actually a lot of evidence against those forceful techniques in the long run with the way kids learn to eat. Yeah. So when children learn to, for the behavioral piece of it, when children learn to eat, for external reasons, not because they understand, trust, and want food and have a positive relationship with food. 
what the research actually shows us is that they're at increased risk of not only dysfunction around eating, but also other health conditions. And so in essence, I love, Heidi, you say something really nice about what what happens to these kids that have these complicated relationships with food. I think one of the things we see is that the most vulnerable eaters are exposed to these most harmful strategies. And what's the most heartbreaking for me is that for parents who have good attachment with their kids and who have good relationships with their kids outside of food, that having a difficult relationship around food can actually undermine all of that attachment in other areas. Yeah. And so I think, you know, the takeaway from all of this is that there's a lot of therapy happening almost everywhere in feeding therapy that isn't super evidence-based that carries with it other risk. It might help your child eat a little bit more, enjoy more tastes, or even eat a lot more, but that there's there's increased costs. And what would be better for the child's health in the long run, but also for the relationships that happen around food, is to find a feeding therapist or to use techniques in your own home that are based on a responsive therapy technique that help promote the attachment and the interaction between parent and child that help the child learn how to regulate what they're taking in, respond to their own physiological needs, and have some autonomy around feeding and learn to trust their bodies. And you can do that responsive feeding, both in therapy and at home, and have information that helps you overcome things like certain behaviors that might be challenging or oral motor deficits or or challenges with coordination of the mouth and sensory awareness. So you can use some of the strategies, some of the techniques that might facilitate development in other areas without, you know, impacting in a negative way, the way that the child is ultimately going to learn how to eat. That's a really important point, I think, that you can do, you can address all of those components in a way that is productive, that doesn't have negative impacts. I think, Jenny, one of the reasons why people get stuck in this loop of negative either therapies or negative mealtime behaviors at home is because they thought their child was magically going to start eating on their own because they were told that kids would get this feeding tube and they would get them over this bump or get them through this significant illness or would help them put a little bit of weight on for a minute and then they would just start eating. And for many of our families, that doesn't happen. So when that doesn't happen, they start looking down other avenues like behavior or oral motor skills or sensory because they were stuck. They yes. didn't start eating magically. And we do hear that a lot from different families that that they're told that it's going to happen on its own, that we get this tube for a little bit and then it'll be okay. And when that doesn't happen and they're offered with only one option of therapy, of course, uh, any parent would say, let's do it. Let's try. We want our kid to be an eater. So kind of related to that, how some it doesn't always happen magically on its own, like parents are sometimes promised when tubes get inserted, is that often parents are told that waiting to wean is what they should do. They should just wait it out and their child will eventually grow out of whatever resistance they have to food and they'll learn to eat on their own. And we know a little bit of information to the contrary. So I hope I hope Heidi, you can explain a little bit about that. I think one of the things that we know from developmental literature, you know, that doctors know, this is a very foundational piece that we know about development that sometimes gets pushed aside when it comes to kids who are tube fed 
is that there's critical windows of development when the brain is ready for certain things and ready to learn certain things. And eating is one of those. We expect kids to start typically learning to eat from a spoon, eating purees around four to six months developmentally. And then somewhere between eight and 12 or 15 months, maybe 18 to two years, even if there's some developmental delays or long periods of illness, that's the time when the brain is ready to learn to eat table foods. So once those windows are over, they can still learn things, but their brain is predisposed or ready to go on to learn other things like colors or climbing stairs or playing outside with their friends. And so we've missed that actual boost of natural development by waiting and just expecting kids to magically start eating on their own. Um, we didn't take advantage of the prime time to do that. Yeah. And another really interesting way to look at it is that tubes aren't neutral. I like to remind people that tubes, when they're needed, save lives every day. We love feeding tubes. We love kids that have feeding tubes. And when they're needed, they are the best thing. And, and thank goodness we live in a world where we have access to them. But when they're not needed and when the underlying medical conditions that made the tube necessary are gone, we know that there are negative impacts in the long run. We know that when children don't learn to self-regulate or learn how to respond to what their body needs appropriately through hunger and eating, that it increases risk of other types of self-regulation-based disease later in life. We know that there's complications just from the tube, whether it be infection or vomiting and, and reflux in some cases but also things like dental decay. And there's a bunch of other stuff, not to mention the stress that goes into having a kid with a tube, not being able to socialize in the same way you socialize with your peers for the child and not being exposed to that socialization, but also for the parents, everything that goes into it from all the way from the financial costs of having a feeding tube all the way down to just kind of like the emotional stress of not being able to eat together in a family in the same way that you would hope to. So those things should all be taken into account too, because we know that stress by itself, leaving apart the financials and other things, stress by itself has a negative impact on health. So if we're only looking at this from a health standpoint, if doctors were really truly informed about what happens to parents when they can't feed their children orally and how hard it can be to feed a tube-fed kid. When the tubes are no longer needed from a medical standpoint, they might be a little bit more eager to help parents transition off of their tubes. Well, I so, think that leads us to another point, Jenny, I think is that doctors may or may not have all the best information or might not have the complete information on that. I think one of the points is that I don't think they fully understand how difficult tubes are in the home. I don't think they understand what feeding tubes look like and the impact that it has. You know, for example, we know that kids who are getting everything they need by tube aren't hungry. And so they should refuse to eat. I know, Jenny, you say that all the time. If you're getting everything you need by tube, it's appropriate for you to refuse. But if that seemed like rejection or refusal, three meals a day for years actually feels like a repeated failure to the parents and then feels like a repeated failure to the kids. And so that time of building up failures actually just leads to such negative uh, emotions and feelings around mealtimes. So I think, you know, just that personal piece is one big piece of information that the doctors can't have because they're not in their house. But I know there's other things that doctors don't know. Yeah, it's kind of unfair that doctors get put in the position to be the people, some doctors get put in the position to be the people that answer all these questions. Because what happens is when their child gets a feeding tube, like I said earlier, they expect it to be a really easy process to get it out. And then it's not, and they go to their doctor, and their doctor either doesn't have the answers or they're recommending some of these therapies or techniques that may not 
prove to be the best for their child or effective. And what we know, having worked with lots of doctors over the years, is that most doctors get very little training in their medical school programs about how to eat. And that kind of makes sense, right? Like if they have anything at all about food, it's about the physiology of food, about the nutrition, about the impact on a child's actual medical conditions, but not necessarily about the function and implications later about how children learn to eat and why that's so important for their development. And so often doctors don't have the answers because they don't have the training and that isn't necessarily their fault. Unfortunately, it puts them and the parents in a really difficult position to have to be like scrambling for answers when the parent has the natural question, when can my kids start eating? I think, you know, that leads to what what does the doctor know about eating? And it, he knows that it leads to weight gain. Mm-hmm. So weight and growth charts become really his primary and sometimes only tool to measure what's going on around food and mealtimes. And we know there's some increasing information coming out about that so doctors are a little more educated than they used to be, but they still don't understand, I think, the breadth and the depth of eating. And more specifically, how does eating apply to kids who are too fed or have some developmental delays? And so they end up getting stuck with weight and growth charts being their primary or only measure of progress and wellness. And, and we know that there's a lot more to progress and wellness than just weight. Waking is important. You know, we don't want to underplay how important waking is. Growth is really important. Brain development is super important when we're little, but it needs to be put into the full context of the child's overall health. And in order to do that, doctors need to have more information about all the other components that go into keeping children well as eaters and not just looking at the one measurable that they have. We also know from the dietitians that we work with and from literature that's available to us that weight charts, the growth charts are often misused as diagnostic tools when they really should be guides kind of just for the general population. We should be looking at more individual measurements for each child often than just looking at growth charts. So it's a really good point. So I think those are some kind of common pitfalls. And and I think it's also really important for parents that are stuck in this place where they don't have answers to remember that it doesn't mean that your doctor doesn't want to help you find answers necessarily. Doctors often don't know, and they're just trying to keep your kids safe. That's their job. And so sometimes resistance to helping you tube wean is just because they're like, they're safe right now. The tube is in and they're safe. That doesn't necessarily have to mean that they're not going to work with you if you can share some good information with them and start the dialogue towards this more kind of responsive feeding, but also towards other measures of health and looking at the big picture in the long run. And just to kind of wrap this all up by ending on a really positive note, because we've mentioned some things that parents don't have, there's actually a lot people can do to prevent their children from becoming tube dependent and developing feeding aversions while being tube fed. And so we hear from a lot of parents that they didn't know that, that they didn't get any of that education when the tube got put in. So we'd love to kind of share some strategies right now for how you can do that. How, Heidi, can we help kids that have feeding tubes kind of protect their relationship with food and not either become dependent, tube dependent, or have a really severe food aversion. I think what I want to say, first of all, is that if you did get to a place where there's some significant aversion or tube dependencies, it's not a parent's fault. It's not necessarily anyone's fault. And sitting in that isn't helpful. Um, 
But I do think that there's some things that you can do if you learn about him soon enough that may help. It may not fully prevent it. It might help. It might actually prevent it. But I think there's a couple of really big overarching themes. And the first one would be to learn to read your child's cues. I know sometimes when kids are really little, it's hard to figure that out. That's one of the hardest things for parents when they first bring a new baby home. And the same thing is true of bringing a child home from the hospital. After a long illness, it takes some time to learn to read their cues, but it's worth it. And in this case, it would mean reading their cues of hunger, reading their cues of fullness. And it may be easier to start with cues of fullness and add in the cues of hunger later. But it's okay to stop the tube feeding if your child looks full or if your child is vomiting afterwards. It's okay to give them a little bit less in order to prevent the vomiting as much as possible. I think another big one that's easy to overlook is reading your cues childs of fear or dislike of, of food or the feeding situation. It's okay to stop what you're doing if it looks like it's causing fear in your child. And, and being responsive to those cues, being responsive to the cues of fullness, responsive to the cues of hunger is going to go a long way towards getting you to a healthy and happy mealtime later, even if it means not doing one more technique that you were told in therapy or getting one more ounce of formula in that somebody told you you needed to get. Yeah. And Heidi, I love, I hear you say this to parents sometimes when we're working together, that sometimes less is more. And if your child isn't positively relating to food orally, but you keep presenting it and they keep struggling, the net lesson is food stinks. And eating stinks. And we're actually trying to help kids have the opposite feelings about food eventually. And so it's just important to know that if you're feeding your kids and it's not going well and they're telling you, no, I don't like this or it feels too hard for me or I'm afraid of it, it's okay to listen to that and either stop offering or offer a lot less. Sometimes doing a lot less can help your child feel a lot more comfortable around food. And I think it's important for us to remember, we know this about our own selves, but it's true here too, that the negative things or the hard things are easier to remember. And so it takes a couple of positive things to overcome every one little negative thing. So if you feel like you're sneaking in one more bite and it isn't going to hurt anything, it does have an impact. So that's a good time for you to rein your yourself in and your desire to help and your desire to progress. Just remember that the positive takes a little bit more time, but it's the most important part and it's really worth it. A question I always ask parents to ask themselves if they're faced with a decision about trying a strategy or a therapy or a different technique around helping their tube-fed kid learn to eat. Does this thing that I'm considering doing help my child understand and trust food more or does it help my child understand and trust food less? If the answer is more, do it. If the answer is less, really strongly take a pause and consider not doing it because we know that if it's going to help them trust and understand food more, then that's building towards skill and getting kids off their feeding tubes. So I think that was really helpful. Hopefully you guys find it really helpful. We're so happy that people joined us today. And we've touched on some points that it helped people help their kids transition from feeding tubes to being tube-free and happy and healthy oral eaters. And we are looking forward to taking you along with us on this journey as we explore each of those topics and many, many more in more depth on Tube to Table. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tube to Table podcast. Every week, we're going to share our show notes at thrivewithspectrum.com. In the show notes, you can find a summary of what we discussed and links to all the resources that we mentioned. Also, you can visit us on social media and Instagram and Facebook. We can be found at Thrive with Spectrum. And on Twitter, you can find us at Thrive with SP. 
Please don't hesitate to reach out to us on social media and let us know if you have any input or any topics that you'd really like to see us address. We'll be back next week. 